Well, uh, good morning. Is this, is this thing on? Are we good? I've always wanted to say that. Good. All right, I got a thumbs up. Uh, this has actually been the most nerve-wracking thing uh, yet this morning is trying to get this thing right and make it fit. Cool. It's all good. Well, uh, good morning, church. It, it is a true privilege to be here this morning on the last Sunday of 2020. For those of you who uh, have not been counting the hours, minutes, and seconds until 2020 is finally over, which I know some people have been doing. Some people may even have a little countdown timer in their house. Uh, that's definitely not my family. Um, but we are here. We're finally here at the last Sunday. And normally this is a coveted Sunday to preach, right? The preacher gets up and he looks back on the year and he picks a passage from Scripture to really reflect on God's goodness and his kindness to us. And then he encourages us going forward. Um, and, you know, when, when Bruce and Pete approached me, like, hey, we want you to preach on December 27th. I'm like, really? You want, you want to give up that spot of preaching on the last Sunday of the year? They're like, yeah, yeah, bro, 2020 is all yours, you know? And so I, uh, I started preparing this lesson, and um, I'm looking through, and that's when, uh, you know, I was a little slow uh, on the uptake, but I realized that the joke was actually on me, that I was the one asked to put this nice, shiny bow on 2020. Uh, in fact, Bruce came up to me at the Christmas Eve service and said, yeah, we're all us, you know, seasoned uh, preachers are calling December 27th the intern Sunday, right? So the interns get to preach, right? He's laughing because he knows it's true, but, um, you know, it's, it's never a bad idea to take a fighter pilot's ego down a peg or two or 12, you know, uh, 12 pegs is, is probably about right uh, this morning. But on a, on a serious note, in case you have missed it, 2020 has uh, not been what the world or maybe even our own minds would consider kind to many of us. It, it would be kind of hard to miss this global pandemic, right? This is the big event of the year that really kind of seemed to start with the changing of the calendar last year, but in March really kind of took off, right? And we saw this huge sweeping force uh, just get behind and infiltrate our world. Uh, some people uh, got sick. In fact, uh, there may be some people in this room who were directly affected by this virus and actually contracted it. And if you didn't get sick yourself, you no doubt know somebody that did. And in the most tragic of cases, we learned or heard about, or at least through second or third contacts of people who actually passed away because of this virus. Some people, if you didn't get sick, maybe you got your hours cut at work, right? Businesses suffered greatly based on the shuttering of people in their homes. In fact, some people may have lost their jobs altogether and saw the greatest economy that we had ever had in our country in a matter of a few weeks just disappear. And people found themselves without jobs and without a way to make ends meet. If none of these truly tragic events that ever even occurred, just the sheer inconveniences that we've had imposed on us, like the wearing of masks. I mean, just the hours of preparation for the sermon feels almost worth it because I don't have to wear a mask for 35 minutes. It's great, right? Um, wearing masks, schools closing, people having to figure out how to be teachers of their kids and still work full-time, uh, businesses closing, favorite restaurants shutting down. Anybody, anybody remember Sweet Tomatoes? Sweet Tomatoes, I mean Sweet potato, Tomatoes fans. So, yeah, my wife, I thought we were going to have to seek grief counseling for her following this news. In fact, I think she's starting a support group if you'd like to join her about Sweet Tomatoes closing. 
And of course, it didn't just stop with a pandemic. We saw racial tensions rise in our country. We saw a general election that seemed to divide the country even more. In fact, if I were just to say the names out loud, Joseph R. Biden and Donald J. Trump, I'm sure that you have had some kind of emotional reaction with just the saying of those names as you sit in your seats this morning. In fact, uh, brothers and sisters, it, it seems that the experts think that 2021 is not looking any better. You see, our secular world and culture will say, well, we'll just turn the calendar, everything will be good again, everybody will have these New Year's resolutions that'll last like five hours, and then they'll be gone like everything else, and then we'll, maybe even some of us will say, oh man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the, through the whole Bible in an entire year, and that lasts until we get to Leviticus and cooking goats and its mother's milk, and then we're like, man, I'm, uh, I'm done for a day or two or a week or a month, and then we kind of lose track of that, right? Guys, if you're looking for the changing of the calendar to fix our problems, I think we're in for a disappointment. The Wall Street Journal reported that even with a vaccine, that 43% of economists believe that it's going to take until 2023, so at least two years, to get back all the jobs that we've lost no matter what side of the political spectrum you are on, it seems that the inconveniences of mask wearing and school closures and business closures, those are, those are here to stay for a little while uh, at the earliest until June, people think, until we can get a vaccine really going in the country. And I bet if we took a straw poll of people in here to ask you, do you think racial tensions were better in January of 2020 or January of 2021? I bet people would say that January 2020 uh, was better. In fact, I would think people would say that we've seen a racial rip in our country unlike anything we've seen in a generation. Um, it, once again, if we're looking for the change of a calendar to solve our problems, we are in for a huge disappointment. So the world tells us these things will just get better, but we know that the world doesn't have the wisdom that God has, right? We know that if we are to go forward as the church and as believers, we need to look somewhere else besides these comforts that the world tells us we need to look. So what, what are those things that we're called to as the church, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Where do we place our hope after a year such as this? How do we reflect on the year and see what God has done and be grateful for it when some people in this audience and watching online, some of the things that are in us don't ever want to do anything of the like after a year like this. And I'll give you kind of the main point of the sermon up front. I think that if we're going to press forward as the church and as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to continuously look at what God has done and who he is. So what God has done and who he is. And the best way I want to look at that is always, of course, to go to Scripture. And I want to look at a man who had lost all hope. Right? He finds himself at a more difficult position than most of us find ourselves at the end of 2020. And he confronts Jesus, he confronts our Lord in a very audacious manner, all right? And praise God for us that Jesus gives him a very clear response and doesn't hold back. So with that, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We're going to start reading in verse 18, and we're going to go through 23. And if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up here on the screen. But let me just pray for us before we dive into God's Word. Father in heaven, this is your Word, and we praise you that it is not the Word of any human 
mind or author. Father, would you send your spirit uh, to each one of us this morning as we open it? Would it illuminate to us? Father, would you speak through it and give us the things that you would like us to hear this morning, what you've called us to hear this morning, God? And I pray that we would go forward in a manner and apply these things, God, as you have called us to in these words today. We love you and we praise you and we pray these things in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 7, the Gospel of Luke, this is the word of the Lord. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he, being Jesus, healed many people, of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many whom were blind he bestowed sight. And he, Jesus, answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is God's word, church, to us this morning. So let's look at that passage a little more closely before we dive too far in, because I think we need to get some context here of what's going on in the passage. If you look, the, the passage opens up with, and John's disciples reported these things to him. So it's a good question to ask, well, what did John's disciples report to him? Uh, if you look in your Bibles, if you have an ESV, you probably see the paragraph headings, uh, Jesus heals a centurion servant, Jesus raises a widow's son, and then you can even go back further and what we see is Jesus is doing incredible things in his ministry, right? People are being healed. The blind are seen again. A centurion's servant is healed, and Jesus doesn't even have to go there. He just says the word, and he's healed, right? A widow's son dies, and instead of just giving a great funeral, Jesus raises him back to life. People are starting to take notice of Jesus. His fame is spreading all over the country. People are saying, have you seen and heard about this Jesus guy? And something incredible is happening that hasn't happened in a very long time in the nation of Israel, and that's that people are starting to glorify God in a brand new, unprecedented way. Because what has happened throughout the entirety of the Old Testament is this cycle of God blessing Israel. Israel rebels. God judges them. They cry out for help. And then God saves them. And this cycle happens over and over again. And then at the end of the book of Malachi, right, we see that God says, hey, there's this Elijah guy that's going to show up again, right? And he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. But then for 400 years, God is silent until now, right? The nation of Israel is starting to glorify God in what we call in the military morale is extremely high because the Messiah may finally be here. They've got this Roman government that's oppressing them. They are taking over their land and giving them rules, and the Jewish people are fed up. And they say, but there's this Jesus guy, and he's doing incredible things, and the Messiah may finally be here. It's safe to say that at this point in his ministry, Jesus is at the very peak, at least in terms of his followership, and the morale is high everywhere except John's prison cell, right? John's in his prison cell, and his morale is not very high. And I think it's very important that we look and see who John the Baptist is because it's going to give us even more context behind his question. John the Baptist 
was prophesied about several times in the Old Testament. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. He is Elijah that is to come and get people ready and turn their hearts back to God for when Jesus finally shows up. He's filled, the Bible says, with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, which is unprecedented for any human, right, in the history of the world, right? For us, the Bible says that once God changes our hearts and we're regenerated, right, and we, are, we come to repentance and faith in Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in us, and now we have the presence of God going forward, right? But for John, it was even from his mother's womb. John was the first one to recognize Jesus, even when nobody else did. John sees Jesus coming in the desert, and John 129 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, what we got to remember about when John said that is nobody knew that about Jesus yet. It was revealed to John by the Father. John even had the honor of baptizing Jesus. And the way my dad explained this to me when I was a young boy, when he was teaching me this lesson to try to get me to understand the gravity of baptizing Jesus, he said it would be like you, a seven-year-old boy, going and teaching Nolan Ryan how to throw a curveball, right? And it, it really kind of me is like, wow, I, don't, I would never teach Nolan Ryan how to throw a curveball. And if you don't know who Nolan Ryan is, we will pray for you uh, after the sermon. And if you're a parent and your children don't know who Nolan Ryan is, then you need to repent and teach them about Nolan Ryan. I, I still don't know of anybody else whose curveball went 91 miles an hour, just saying. Uh, but he has this honor of baptizing the Lord. When people left to follow Jesus and left John, he said, that's okay. Go, follow Jesus, because he must increase and I must decrease. In fact, if you grew up in the 90s, you maybe had a little wristband that had like a he with a greater than sign and I. It's like it was during the whole WWJD thing. Like it was really cool, uh, but not that cool. I'm not sad that it's gone necessarily. Uh, but we see that John ends up in prison, and he's in prison for standing up for the truth of God's word. You see, the king was taking his brother's wife into his own bed, right? And so John said, that's not right. You can't do that. And he calls the king out and calls him to repentance. And the king, in order to shut him up, puts him in prison. So John finds himself in prison for standing up bravely, for defending the truth of God's word. You see, John knows who he is. That is, John knows who he himself is. He identifies himself as the prophecy fulfilled from the Old Testament. He's the one crying out in the wilderness, the voice preparing the way for the Lord. In John 1.21, he says this. Jesus explains that John is Elijah that was to come in Matthew chapter 11. John is the one that God set apart for the noblest of tasks to prepare the way for the Lord himself. And he finds himself in prison, alone in chains for speaking the truth of God's word. Brothers and sisters, like John, when our circumstances like this do not match our expectations, we find ourselves driven to fear and doubt and unbelief. When our circumstances don't match our expectations, we are driven to doubt and to fear and unbelief. Look at the audacity of John's question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look to another? Now, playing a little Monday morning quarterback, uh, the, at least the question I ask is, John, what, what else were you looking for? Who else have you ever seen that raises people back to life? Who opens the eyes of the blind? 
You see, John knows all these things about Jesus. He's testified from Jesus from the very beginning. In fact, he, when he baptized Jesus, he saw the Spirit, the Bible says, descend from on high as a dove and remain on him. And he even heard a booming voice from heaven. How many times have we said to God, maybe we've prayed it when we were kids or maybe even recently, God, if you would just speak to me from heaven in a booming voice and tell me what to do, then I'll believe and I'll do it, right? I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It hasn't happened to me. Uh, but John heard it. He heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. John has all of these things for himself, yet he not only doubts, but he sends his messengers to ask Jesus for somebody else. See, John is who he is. He knows who he is, but he's stuck with his circumstances not matching his expectations. Before we get into the main meat of the sermon, I just ask you, church, to to look in your own hearts. And after a year like this, I would ask you, where are your circumstances not matching your expectations? What has driven you to doubt? What has driven you to fear? Where are you going to unbelief? Or where are you acting in rebellion against God because of something that has happened in your life? Maybe even like John, do you see the rejoicing of somebody else and does it cause bitterness in your heart because of your circumstances? Well, Church, the bad news is that none of us are immune to this, right? We're, we're very circumstantial creatures. Things happen to us, and we allow them to drive us to these points. And if you are a parent, uh, you have no doubt seen this, uh, right? We, we made Christmas cookies for our kids, and, you know, Hannah did a great job. She, she baked them, and they were perfect little sugar cookies. We decorated them. And our kids were so happy that they were finally going to get these Christmas cookies. And then, you know, as you drop the cookie down, it gets a little, a little crack in it, right? And then this child goes from sheer joy and happiness to terror and anger because there is now a crack in his Christmas cookie, right? And you go, how have the circumstances have changed with the crack in a Christmas cookie? But that's a very elementary way to show that there's things that happen in our lives like this where one moment... We are full of joy and happiness, and the next moment, we are filled with terror and anger. And it's because we make these circumstances priority. But the good news is that Jesus is ready to meet us, right, where we are with what we need to hear. Just listen to his response to John. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see, maybe the world thinks, or maybe even some, you've heard a preacher say before that Jesus is telling you to just dig a little deeper, right? Get a little bit more faith. Come on, you can do it. You can push through, right? You can pick yourself up by your bootstraps because God helps those who help themselves, right? I don't know if you've ever seen a bumper sticker on your car, but I would strongly encourage you not to put that one on there. It's very unbiblical and untrue. God doesn't help those who help themselves. That's that's not what Jesus says here. Notice how Jesus doesn't scold John. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't tell him to press harder and dig deeper. Even though Jesus is well within his rights to say these things, he's very gracious towards John. His answer is comprised of the two things that we've already talked about. Jesus points to what he has done and who he is, and he starts off with what he has done. Now, remember, in context, 
John knows these things that Jesus is talking about. He knows that Jesus has given the blind their sight, that he's given the deaf their hearing back. He knows that he has raised people to life. So why is Jesus telling him again? And the answer is Jesus is doing what God does throughout all of Scripture, and he's reminding John of these things. You see, we are very forgetful people. I'm so grateful uh, we didn't coordinate it, but James played the hymn of come thou fount of every blessing. But the, the last verse in that is so true. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love. And God knows this. And he calls us to remember the things that he has done. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, over 20 times God identifies himself, his name, with a great, great work that he has done. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is constantly reminding the Israelites as he addresses them, I am your God. I know that you're wandering in the wilderness. I know you got no food. I know you got no water. I know the Egyptian army is coming for you, but I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Christian, can you think of something in your life that God has done for you? Can you look back on your life and really take a look at your past and find a place where God intervened? If God were to address you this morning, what would he say? I am the Lord your God who did what for you? Brothers and sisters, I bet if we looked at our past really closely, we're going to find God's work all over it. In fact, uh, one of the things that I was led to kind of just help me visualize this is in my line of work as an A-10 pilot, one of the most important parts of my job is flying over the battlefield and identifying where the friendly forces are and where the enemy forces are. And you can kind of see the tragedy of events that can transpire if you were to confuse those two positions, right? Um, and so one of the ways that we do that is from what we call the, the talk-on, which is a, you know, obviously a very um, uh, creative name for the fact that the controller talks you on to the positions, right? Uh, but Part of the talk-on always includes what we call a tactical reference point, or TRP. But this TRP is something on the battlefield that is unmistakable, can't be confused for anything else. In the Sonoran Desert or the skies of Afghanistan, right, it's usually a cluster of trees. They're usually one every 100 miles or so. Uh, but it's very easy to identify. So if the controller is talking the pilot onto these positions so that he doesn't ever have to start all over, he can say, okay, do you have contact with the cluster of trees? Yeah, yeah, I got that and then he can walk you back and start from there instead of having to start all over. Brothers and sisters, are these things that God has done for us are our tactical reference points. They're meant to point us back to God so that we don't get lost in our wanderings. They are here to prove that God is faithful, that he is sovereign, that he is good. We look at these things and we say, there is no way that was anything other than what the Lord God has done. Before we leave this first point, I want you to just realize that this, these things that God does for us, they're not meant to just simply make us feel better. Although that may be an after effect, that is not God's primary goal. God's primary goal is not temporary band-aid type fixes to make you feel better and then let you move on with your life. Rather, God is concerned with eternal change. He's concerned about conforming us to the image of his son, as Paul speaks about in Romans 8, 29, right? When we do this, when we look at this, we must remember that God doesn't just want us to feel better. 
He wants us to be like Jesus, right? He wants us to get to a point where we're being conformed evermore to the image of his son. Praise God that he gives us these assurances in the things that he has done because we certainly do not deserve them. The second thing that Jesus does is he points to who he is. Now listen to Jesus' response uh, and the parting shot he gives to John because it's very important. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So normally I don't dig into the Greek too much when I preach because it's been about a year since I took it and Bruce is probably going to have to correct me and I'm not going to parse it right. But uh, the Greek word that is translated here is the word skandalizo, right? Skandalizo for to be offended. You may recognize the root of the verb uh, where we get our word scandal from, right? Uh, He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I think it's helpful to look in scripture where these verbs are used elsewhere. And there's one other real prominent time in Matthew 26 and in Mark chapter 14 uh, in a parallel passage where Jesus is warning the disciples about falling away right before his crucifixion. Jesus says, you will all scandalizo, right, fall away because of me this night. And Peter responds, though they all scandalizo or fall away, I will never scandalizo or fall away, right? We all know that Peter does not keep his promise to not scandalizo, right? He denies Christ three times before the sun even comes up. But if we remember the story correctly, remember the story correctly, it's not because of what Jesus has done. The people around the fire don't look at Peter and go, you were with Jesus when he raised that Lazarus guy up, right? They don't ask him that. Right? Jesus' works are very seldom controversial, right? Like even the world would say, well, it's probably a pretty good thing if you know, there are no more blind people or no more deaf people or if when people die, they could come back to life. Like those are pretty good things. What do the people around the campfire say to Peter? They say, you were with that Jesus guy, weren't you? You, you were with him. I know you were. I saw you. No, 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 it wasn't me. Yeah, it was. It was you, your accent. It gives you away, Right? They say, no, it wasn't me. All they say is, you were with him, weren't you? You were with that guy, and because of who he is, Peter denies him. Perhaps we're not in the same context as Peter or John, right? But what we see in both of these situations is a fundamental breakdown in the trust of who Jesus is. For Peter, maybe he saw Jesus get arrested and said, well, that's it. There goes this whole Messiah thing that we were all hyped up about, right? Jesus really is not the Messiah if he's got arrested and they're about to kill him tomorrow, right? That doesn't happen to the Messiah. Maybe John hears all these wonderful things that Jesus is doing and he says, yeah, that's great, but what about me, right? I got these chains. I can't leave. Like the guy is, you know, got me in this dungeon and I've got guards and I'm behind these bars. Scandalizoing, uh, if I can make up a word on a, in a sermon, which I'm pretty sure is legal, uh, takes many different forms besides just straight up denying Christ. If we actually look at John, he asks for somebody else. Now, before we rag on John too much, I would ask you each to look at your lives and look at your past. And I think what we'll see is that we come to a place where we ask the same questions that John does. Jesus, I've been single for a long time now. Are you going to give me a spouse or should I look for somebody else? Jesus, my loved one is sick. Are you going to heal them or should I look for somebody else? Jesus, my marriage, you know, it's, it's in trouble. It's broken. Are you going to fix it 
or should I look for somebody else? Jesus, I've been out of work for months now. I'm about to go on food stamps. Are you going to get me a new job, or should I look for somebody else? You see, embedded in each one of these questions, embedded in John's question, is a breakdown, and it's an attack on who God is. It's essentially saying, God, you just don't care enough. You're just not powerful enough. You must not love me enough, or else my circumstances would be different. All these things are just simply saying, God, you're just not who you told me that you were. You're not who this word says that you are. The question I would ask all of us today at the end of 2020 is, where are we looking for somebody else? Where have we lost trust in who God is? Because I think until we answer this question, there's not a whole lot of probability that we're going to figure anything else out. How do we do this? How do we get to a place where we can fully trust in who God is? Because it's, it's kind of simple now that we think about it to look back on what God has done, but how do I know who God is? And I think it all starts right here, church. It starts with meditation and deep immersion daily in his word. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 5. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? You see, Jesus says, if you're going to know who I am, it all starts right here, right? If you're going to know who I am, it starts right here with his word. I think consistent and daily prayer is paramount, right? And I think this is one of the first things that falls out of our spiritual journeys is we stop praying and we stop communicating with God, but nothing is more important. Think about Jesus's prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Think about just in the opening sentence of that prayer, what we learn and what we confess about who God is. Our Father, he's Father, he's good, he's kind, right? Who art in heaven, he's king, he's sovereign, he's over it all. Nothing is outside of his control. Hallowed be thy name. His name in and of itself is holy. He's set apart from the rest of creation. There's nothing or nobody else like him. When we look to how we can do these things, how we can know who God is, study of his word and consistent prayer are important. Um, I can remember it like it was yesterday. My, my son, he was about three at the time, and I only had one at the time, but we went down to my parents' place in Florida, and they had a pool, and he was just starting to learn how to, you know, get in the water, kick around. He obviously couldn't swim yet, but uh, he had his swimmies on, and he looked like he wanted to jump in the pool. So I got in the pool, and I was like, yeah, man, come on. Uh, jump to me, and he'd walk up to the edge of the pool, and he'd see it, and then he'd walk away. And he'd go back up to the edge of the pool, and he'd look over, and he'd walk away. And I'm standing like, come on, bud. I'll catch you. Just, just jump in. And after about 10 minutes of going up, walking away, going up, walking away, he finally asked me a question. He said, well, how do I know that you're going to catch me, right? Because that was his big fear is that I wasn't going to catch him. And the only thing I could think to answer my son at the time was just to point to who I was. Uh, I didn't say because, you know, I can bench press. I'm not going to say it because I don't want anybody to make fun of me, right? I didn't, I didn't point to my strengths or, or anything like that. I just said, well, because... I'm your dad. I'm not going to let you sink, right? Because I am your father, and that's who I am, you're not going to sink because I'm going to catch you, right? I think if we were to really look at God and to look at who he is as our father, 
I think we would have more confidence in jumping into the pool, especially in these circumstances in our lives. Because brothers and sisters, how much more powerless do I seem compared to God's power to hold those who are his than to keep my son from sinking when he jumps in the pool, right? How much more powerless am I? Obviously, you guys have met my son, so I did not let him sink, uh, right? But this is all to say that God gives us these things based on who he is and because we are his. In fact, in scripture, they're going to put it up on the screen, but in John chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Now Jesus is making these promises. You are mine because you are mine. I hold you in my hand and I'm never going to let anybody else snatch you out. But the reason why we know, the reason why we trust Jesus is in verse 30 and it's so important. He says, I and the Father are one, right? So how can we trust Jesus? How do we know he's not going to let us sink? How do we know he's going to hold on to us? It's because him and the Father are one. Jesus says, I am the eternal God, right? From eternity past to eternity future, I'm the word made flesh who's ascended, who sits at the right hand of God, and who rules over all creation. I'm coming again to establish my throne, and you can trust that I hold you because of who I am. Do we believe this today, church? Do we believe in every aspect of who Jesus is? Have we fully trusted in him, in his love, in his power, in his sovereignty, in his holiness? Because until we fully trust in who Jesus is, we're going to continue to ask for somebody else, and we're going to continue to be disappointed. Until we fully trust in who Jesus is, we're going to continue to ask for somebody else, and we're going to continue to be disappointed. Well, if you, if you don't know the end of the story, things don't turn out so hot for John, right? So Herod is at a dinner, uh, and he gets really, really drunk, and his brother's wife's daughter, brother's wife who he's sleeping with, daughter, so really his niece, does an exotic dance for him, uh, and Herod is so perverted and drunk that he says, that pleased me so much that I'm going to offer you half of my kingdom. And instead of af- asking for half the kingdom, the daughter says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter right now, right? And so John sends, and, or Herod sends an executioner to John's cell, removes his head from his body, and presents it to this young girl as payment for her dance, right? So John's life ends as a payment to an exotic dancer. Nothing that I think any of us would desire for how we want our lives to end, right? We look at this and we say, this was the guy that God set apart for the noblest of tasks, and this is what ends up to him, how this, his life ends up. And we look and we say, how could God do that? And maybe we're asking, at the end of 2020, we're asking ourselves, how could God let fill in the blank, right? In our lives, in everybody's lives, in our neighbor's lives, in our mother and father's lives. But guys, church, brother, sister, the gospel offers far more than just a bettering of our circumstances. You see, if we are putting our hope 
in what will happen to us or our circumstances right now, we are in for huge disappointment. The gospel says that we are undeserving. If we were all to look at ourselves and in our hearts, we would see that we don't deserve the next breath that we take and we all rebel against God and stand guilty before him, but it is in the person who he is and the work, what he has done of Jesus Christ that we find our salvation. You see, the gospel offers far more than just a bettering of our circumstances, right? It offers us salvation And if you're here in the audience this morning or if you're watching online and you haven't come to a place where you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you haven't put your faith in what he did on the cross and turned away from your sins and followed him, I would ask you to come find me, come find Bruce, Pete, uh, a friend that's a believer, and let's have a conversation. Let's talk about that because until that happens, this word, this application of being Christ and being his child is, is not guaranteed to you until we become one of his children through faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you find yourself there this morning, Christian, if you find yourself as a believer in Christ, yet your circumstances don't match your expectations, then the gospel of the good news is that it doesn't stop with your salvation. You see, it would be a grave mistake to think that once God saves you, his grace is done with you. The truth is, in Scripture, God says that his grace permeates every aspect of our lives for all eternity. The gospel doesn't promise a lower mortgage. It doesn't promise a car paid off. It doesn't promise education for your children. It doesn't promise wealth, and it doesn't promise world peace, no matter what any kind of TV preacher may tell you in order to get a donation from you, right? None of those things are promised in Scripture. What is promised in Scripture is peace and rest through the gospel of Christ. Listen to Jesus' words as we close in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, the yoke and burden of Christ is light because he has already accomplished the work. It's light and easy, not because our circumstances are great or because we are powerful. There's light and easy because of what Christ has already done. And that's what the gospel offers us this morning in the midst of our circumstances. So church, go today and look back on this year and find where are your circumstances not matching your expectations? Where have you forgotten what God has done for you in your life? I am the Lord your God who did what in your life? Think about where you're looking for somebody else and then take a look at that and see where am I not fully trusting in who God is and who my Lord Jesus Christ is. And think about where am I asking for somebody else and where can I look to my Savior? My prayer for us today is that we would cast our circumstances and expectations aside and rest in the work, the person, and the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ, because only in him will we find true rest and peace that the gospel promises.